This month we're talking about being better. Uh, and many of us, when the new year rolls around, we feel like we've got a fresh slate or a fresh start and a clean slate. We feel like it's time to examine ourselves and start living our lives better. We do that in physical ways, but hopefully we're thinking about spiritual ways that we can improve our lives, that we can be better and do better. Now, unfortunately, as we talked about last week, unfortunately, so many of us have a tendency to think of Christianity in terms of a checklist, don't we? We think about Christianity in terms of do's and do nots. And we think, this is the list of things I should be doing, and this is the list of things I should not be doing. And so we think that being better and doing better is simply a matter of trying harder, that I just need to try harder to do the do's and try harder not to do the don'ts. But we're really missing the big picture. That's really not how the gospel is presented. That's not how Paul, when he writes a letter, like the letter to the Ephesians as we're going to look at this morning, when he writes a letter to encourage Christians to be better and do better, he doesn't put it in terms of a checklist that they just need to try harder at. Now, as we talked about last week, Paul's prayer and his encouragement is that we have the eyes of our hearts enlightened by the gospel. That we need to know certain things, that we need to be enlightened by truth, and therefore our good works, our betterness is going to come from that. So that's what we're talking about, and and what is that? What enlightens our hearts and enlightens our minds so that we can see things as they truly are, and how do we have the right understanding so that we can live better and do better and be better people. And so with that in mind, the question this morning is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And so when I ask that, you, you automatically think, well, wait a second, what, is he scolding us or something, right? Uh, because that's how we, we, we talk to people when they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, right? We ask them, who do you think you are, right? Because we understand, we understand in the deepest part of our hearts that who you think you are affects how you behave, right? And so when my kids are forgetting their place in the family, right, and their behavior is affected by the the fact that they're forgetting who they are and who they belong to and what they're supposed to be doing, their behavior reflects that, and I have to remind them and ask them, who do you think you are? And so if we really stop and think about that, we would realize that our identity, who we think we are, is affecting, maybe more than we realize, our behavior. And so if we want to get better and do better, we got to stop and ask ourselves, who do we think we are? Where is our identity coming from? What is shaping our identity? I, I probably don't have to prove this any further than we've already talked about because it's so self-evident that attitude or, or rather identity affects behavior. But, but let, just think about it for a second, okay? If you believe yourself to be a billionaire, right? Or maybe you really are a billionaire and you just know that about yourself. But whether or not you, you, you have the billion dollars in your pocket or not, if you know that you're a billionaire and you lose a hundred dollars, is that going to, how's that going to affect your day? How's that going to affect your behavior? What, what are you going to say about that? Well, if you have a billion dollars in the bank and you lose a hundred dollars, you're going to shrug your shoulders, right? And you're going to say, that's no big deal. I, I, I could blow my nose on a hundred dollars, right? I, it doesn't make any difference to me. I, it's, 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 it's nothing. It's change, right? I'm not concerned about that in the least. 
But if you know and you understand about yourself that you're not a billionaire, and in fact it's tight sometimes living one paycheck to the next paycheck, and you lose a hundred dollars, well, is that going to affect your behavior? It, sure, it is. You're going to tear the house upside. You're going to tear the house apart. You're going to turn everything upside down trying to find the hundred dollars because your identity, who you are, who you understand yourself to be, who you know yourself to be, it affects your behavior. If somebody, if somebody believes themselves to be invincible, right? That they, they can't die, that they can't be hurt, that they could take on the world, that they could do anything, they have all the strength and power in the world, well, that's going to affect their behavior, right? Or if tomorrow you got news that you had a rare disease and your life was coming to an end, that would affect your behavior, wouldn't it? If a young girl was told her whole life, or at least made to feel like by the way people treated her, She was made to feel that she was ugly, that she wasn't pretty. And she was told that, and she was treated that way, and she began to believe it. Would that affect her behavior? Would she act differently because she believes herself to be an ugly person than she would have had she believed that she was a beautiful person? If a young man believes himself to be talentless and to have no skills and have no abilities and to be horrible at everything he tries, is that going to affect his behavior? Of course it is. Who you believe yourself to be, who you know yourself to be, who you think you are, affects almost everything that you do. Let me me illustrate that. It helps us to answer some of these important questions. Number one, it helps us to answer, who is my community, right? And that's a good way for us to examine who we think we are by saying, "Who who do I identify with, right? If you believe yourself to be primarily a victim, that because you've been mistreated, and some people truly have, And they have been mistreated and mistreated and mistreated and it has so shaped their identity that they identify themselves and they think of themselves as a victim that they are going to identify with other victims, right? That is going to become their community, right? If what has shaped your thinking about yourself, what has shaped your identity is the amount of money you have in the bank, whether that's a lot or a little, then you're going to identify with... You're going to feel a camaraderie with, you're going to feel like people are a part of your community if you identify with how much money they have in the bank or what they do for a living. Or maybe if it's your love of sports and and that's really what shaped your identity and primarily you think of yourself as a fan of whatever team and you, you walk into a place and you see somebody else with a hat on that has your favorite logo on there, you're going to identify with them, right? You're going to go up and you say, hey man, we're... We're one of a kind. We're, we're in the two peas in a pod, right? I mean, you're, we're part of the same family because you identify with what they identify with. So we got to stop and ask ourselves, who is my community? Who are my people? Who is my family? Because that's going to help us understand how do we identify ourselves? Who do we think that we are? Number two, it's going to help us to answer the question, what's expected of me? What are the expectations that are on me? If I believe myself to be a hopeless failure, well, then I'm going to have very low expectations of myself, right? What's possible for me, number three? It's going to help us to answer what's possible for me. What are my limitations? What, what, what is my limit? What might I be able to achieve? We're going to answer that question primarily by who we think we are. Number four, 
What is my worth? Am I valuable as a person? So many people, and probably some of us, our value is based on our identity, and our identity has been shaped by, you name it, right? Your parents help to shape your identity, probably. They help to tell you and inform you who you are, right? Uh, your, your community has helped to shape who you think you are. Your friends, your, your spouse, your, your children, your, your neighbors, the culture, your failures, your successes, they've helped to shape who you are. And what we have to realize is who we think we are is affecting how we behave, how we live, what we do. And if we want to get better, then we have to stop and examine and ask ourselves, who am I really? And who am I going to allow to shape my identity? Am I going to continue to let my culture and my experiences, am I going to continue to let my career and my successes or my failures to shape who I think I am? Or am I going to choose another way to shape my identity? It was interesting to me that this Wednesday we had a Hindu neighbor come and share with us some thoughts about Hinduism. And it was interesting to me the importance that he placed on this idea of who you are and finding out who you think you are. And I would totally agree with the thought that it is going to shape how you live your life. And it is a question of utmost importance. Where I would disagree, however, is where you find the answer to that question. You see, he would say that you look inside yourself, that you meditate and that you are introspective in order to figure out who you are. And really, that's a a narrative that our culture has accepted, right? Don't let anybody else tell you who you are. You tell yourself who you are. You look inside and figure out who you are. But I have another option. I think the gospel presents us with another option, that we stop listening to all the people that want to tell us who we are, and that we don't even presume to tell ourselves who we are. That it's not about introspection, it's about Revelation. It's about a message that comes down from God telling us who we are. And that's what we as Christians are going to have to decide. I am going to listen to who God says I am and allow that to shape and mold my identity. And therefore, I will live better if I accept the identity that God has given me. If I allow God to name me and not the world to name me and not even to presume to name myself, but to listen to what God has called me. Now, we might think that the message that God has for us is completely positive, right? I mean, God loves you. You're awesome. You're wonderful. Don't change anything. Just be yourself, right? We might think that that's the message of the gospel, that the message of the gospel is completely positive because many people aren't willing to accept the negative implications of the gospel. And that's kind of where we have to start, isn't it? We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 next week, but I just real quickly want to mention Ephesians 2 and verse 1 says that outside of Christ, our identity is dead. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. Verse 3 says that we were by nature children of wrath. Romans chapter 5 says that we are enemies of God. So accepting the gospel and accepting who does God say that I am, part of that is accepting that in and of ourselves, who we are and what we've accomplished by ourselves without Jesus is dead, is a child of wrath by nature, is an enemy of God 
outside of Christ, without Christ, that is my identity. I know the world says, oh, you're wonderful, you're fantastic, you're special, you're this, you're that, you're the other. But God says, outside of Christ, if you've sinned, and we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then you are a rebel and you've made yourself an enemy of God. That's the bad news. But if we're going to accept and understand and appreciate and praise God for the good news of the gospel, the good implications of the gospel, and the implications that has for who we think we are, then we first have to accept the negative implications. We have to understand that outside of Christ, without Jesus, in and of ourselves, we are hopeless, we are helpless, we are rebels, we are enemies of God. Not God's children, not God's delight, but God's enemies, which makes the gospel even more exciting. So look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. So Paul begins this letter, and he's writing to Christians in Ephesus, a lot like if, if Paul was alive today or if we lived back then, he'd be writing a letter to the Church of Christ on McDermott Road, right? And he'd be saying, I think, some of the similar things that he's saying to the church at Ephesus. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. We talked about that last week. Apostle means somebody who is sent, a delegate, an ambassador. And so Paul's saying, I have the authority of Jesus to tell you Jesus' mind, to tell you what Jesus thinks, to, to give you a message from Jesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to, now listen to this phrase, the saints. To the saints who are in Ephesus, Right? That's what he's calling the church that belongs to Jesus in Ephesus. That each and every person that is faithful in Christ Jesus is a saint. That word means holy ones. But we've allowed that phrase, that identity, to be hijacked, haven't we? We, we say things all the time like, well, you know, I, I try to live a good life, and I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm certainly no saint. Wait, what do you mean by that? What are you saying? I'm no saint. Biblically speaking, the, the identity of saint is an identity that is not achieved, it's received. Think about that for a second. The identity being a saint, being God's holy one, is an identity that is bestowed on someone in Christ Jesus. You cannot achieve sainthood, but you can receive sainthood. You can be a saint if you're in Christ Jesus. Oh, wait a second, Wes. You don't know all the things I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know how people have looked at me. You, you, you don't know what I've said. You don't know how far I've gone and how bad I've been. Do you know who wrote this book? Do you know who wrote Ephesians? Paul was a terrorist. He was a murderer. He persecuted the church. And he's writing to his fellow holy ones. Not perfect people. Not people that have achieved sainthood on their own merits, but who have received sainthood on the merits of Jesus Christ. You see, we've got to accept the negative implications of the gospel. That outside of Christ, you are God's enemies. But we also have to accept, in the deepest part of our soul, the positive implications of the gospel. That if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. 
If you are in Christ Jesus, I'm going to keep saying it until you say amen. If you are in Christ Jesus, then you're a saint. Right? You're a saint. You are God's holy ones. Think about how that will change your behavior, right? Because there's a sense in which you're a sinner. Yes, I understand that. There's a sense in which I'm a sinner. Yes, absolutely. I have sinned. I continue to struggle with sin. I'm still caught in the flesh and, and I still battle against that. But that's not really the way the Bible uses the word sinner. Not the way we tend to use it. We all say, well, we're all just sinners. No, wait a second. That's not your identity anymore. Not because you finally gotten rid of all your sin. You're not sinning anymore. No. Because of what Jesus has made you. If you are in Jesus Christ, then you are not a sinner in that sense. You've been set free from that identity and you have a new identity. And in order for you to live like a saint, you've got to start believing that you already are one. You have to accept that identity in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do this this week if you have time. Go through Ephesians and circle or underline all the blessings that are in Christ Jesus. All the blessings of forgiveness and redemption and all of these wonderful long words that means that we stand right before God. Why? Why? Because you're such a nice guy? Because you're such a wonderful woman? No! Because you're in Christ Jesus. Because you've hidden yourself in Him. And if you've hidden yourself in Christ, then God is showering you with all the blessings that are in Christ Jesus. And you have to believe it. Number four. Verse four, rather. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Chose. That's a good word, isn't it? That's a good word. Now, we understand that, that God didn't choose Wes individually. He chose the church, right? He chose all people who would accept Jesus Christ and would follow Jesus. They are His chosen people. But I love that, don't you? Uh, I don't know about you, but I wasn't picked a whole lot to be on anybody's team when I was a kid, right? I mean, when we would do the dodgeball or baseball, I hated it. I liked it when you just one, two, one, two, you just choose that way, you know, because nobody's picking. But when somebody picked, I was always the guy. I wasn't last to be picked. Good news. Bad news is I was the guy that wasn't picked at all. And then he just got to go to the other team of the other guy. So, you know, I was always the one people got stuck with. But that's us in Christ. We are chosen. We are God's chosen people. Not as individuals, but as a group. God said, I want them to be my people. The messed up, the sinful, the wicked, the liars, the murderers, the, the, the reformed homosexual, all of these people. I want them to be my people. I want to wash them and clean them. I want to redeem them. I want to restore them. And I want them to be mine. Isn't that good news for us? That in spite of what we've done, and despite, in spite of how our parents might have looked at us, and in spite of how our, the world might look at us, in spite of the way our clothes form our identity, or, or the way our looks form our identity, or our successes, or our failures, we get to be God's chosen people. That He chose before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Holy and blameless. Not achieved but received. Not too long ago, there was a, a lady who was in a class and she was very upset. She was just beside herself. 
just bawling. And she's, we asked her, you know, what's wrong? What, what, what happened? She said, not many people know this, but my son is in prison. And I blame myself. I wasn't a good mother. And I didn't do what I should have done as a mother. And now he's in prison because of me. And everybody in the room did what, what friends do, right? They, they tried to comfort her and they said, no, 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 don't blame yourself. It's not your fault. You're not a bad mom. That's not your identity. You're, I'm sure you were a good mom and you loved your son. You can't blame yourself for what he did. And there was some truth to that, but she looked inside and she knew that that wasn't the truth. Because then she went on to say that she was assaulted by a man. And that's how she became pregnant with her son. She wanted to end her son's life before he was born, but wasn't able to. So he was born, and when he was born, she couldn't look at him, and she didn't love him like a mother should love her son, and it hurt her. And so she pushed him away, and she pushed him away, and she pushed him away, and she pushed him away. Of course, later, she grew to love him, and he loved her, but by then, the damage had been done, and he went down a path that he shouldn't have gone down. So she didn't need to just hear, hey, it wasn't your fault, don't blame yourself, you're a good person, because she knew that's not the truth. So I looked in her eyes, and I said, that wasn't you. You weren't that mother. Her eyes got real big, her mouth dropped open. What do you mean? I wasn't that mother. I said, that wasn't you. That woman who didn't love her son because of the horrible things that had happened to her and that had perpetuated the badness That woman died. I know. I was at her funeral. And we buried her in a water of baptism. We buried that woman and a different woman rose up. And she was holy and blameless. That's the message we need to hear. Because we all have skeletons in our closet, don't we? We all have things that we wish we hadn't done and things that you can tell me all day long, well, Wes, you're a good person. Wes, you knew, you know, and, and you can try to pacify me all day long. But what I need to know is the gospel, that Jesus took that old person and that person is dead and he's buried in the water and Jesus rose a new person that is hiding and clothed in Jesus. And so when God looks at me, he sees holiness and blamelessness. Not because I in and of myself am holy and blameless, but because when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. And so I reminded her, when God looks at you, He sees perfection. He sees holiness. And he sees blamelessness. That is our identity. You can accept if you want to an identity that says you're a horrible parent. You can accept as an identity if you want to that you're a horrible person. You can accept as an identity if you want to that you're this, that, or the other. Whatever your experience is or the world tells you that you are. Or you can choose to accept the gospel which has negative implications, which says, yeah, you really are sinful. You really are God's enemy. But that's not how he sees you anymore. Now when he looks at you, because of Jesus, he sees holiness and he sees perfection. I don't know about you, but I want that to be my identity. That God has cleansed me and purified me so that now I stand before him perfect and that's how I want to live. I want to live a holy life and a blameless life. Why? Because that's what he's made me. And I want to live out the identity that he has given me in Christ Jesus. Okay, I I know I'm running out of time, but 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, now we all know that, right? We all know that when, when we become a Christian, we become a child of God, right? But, but I think, I think sometimes we're not really willing to accept the negative implications of the gospel. The implication of saying God adopts people in Christ into his family, you have to first understand that if you're not a Christian, you're not in God's family. He's not your dad. He's not in that sense your father. Is there a sense in which God, that all people are God's children in the sense that he created them? Sure, absolutely. But not in the sense that he delights in them like a father does in his kids, right? If I go to the mall, there's all kinds of kids there, right? But they're not my children. And I feel differently about those children than I do my children. Because they're my children. They're my kids. I've taken them under my roof. I clothe them. I feed them. They belong to me. They're my family. They're my flesh and blood. I give my life for them. That's how God feels about His children. And when we become Christians, we're adopted into His family. And so He becomes our Abba Father. Isn't that amazing? Because you didn't deserve to be adopted. I know sometimes we think we did, right? We did, we think, well, yeah, God wants me in his family. I mean, if I was lined up on the team and God was picking out people to be on his team, I mean, surely, I may not be the first one, but I mean, surely I get picked. There was no reason for him to pick you. There's no reason for him to accept you on his team other than his mercy and his grace and in his love he predestined us for adoption as sons. Because of his love, not because of your goodness. And so it doesn't matter what your parents said about you. It doesn't matter what successes you've had or what failures you've had. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how little money you have. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how ignorant you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is this, that God so loved the world a world full of enemies, a world who was still lost in sin. And he said to them, if anyone will come to me, if anyone will believe in my son, I will adopt them into my family. And we don't really have a good understanding of adoption either. Because in that culture, in the Roman culture, when somebody was adopted into a family, when a son was adopted into a Roman family, that son became an heir of the family in the same way that a natural born son did. And so when God says, you're adopted into my family, you better believe it. You better believe that you are truly a child of God. That he looks at you the way he looks at his only begotten son, Jesus. He looks at you in the same way because you have been adopted into the family. How do you know that, Wes? Romans chapter 8 says that the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's such a beautiful passage. In a Roman adoption, when somebody was adopted into a Roman family, there were seven witnesses that would witness the adoption. And that way, when the father died, and it was time for the adopted son to get his inheritance, and somebody said, well, wait a second. No, you're not from that family. You don't look like that family, right? You don't fit in that family. Then one of the witnesses could come forward and say, no, no, no. He is an heir of this family. I was there when he was adopted. And our witness 
is the Holy Spirit of God who testifies when you doubt and when anybody else doubts and other people try to name you and tell you who you are, the very Spirit of God says, no, they're children of God. Those are my kids. That's my family. You can accept the identity that comes out of your heart. You can accept the identity that comes out of your successes. You can accept the identity that comes out of your failures. You can accept the identity that your parents tried to give you. You can accept the identity that your coworkers try to give you. Or you can accept the identity that God tries to give you. Now, I understand. We, we, we hear God saying, I love you, and I want you in my family, and I want to cherish you and protect you. And that all sounds well and good when we're here in the church building, right? But then we go out there on Monday, and we start caring more about what somebody else has to say about us than we do what God has to say about us. I was thinking about that this week, that when I was a teenager, you know, or middle school, and thankfully I, I got a pretty girl to, to, uh, to be my wife. But uh, at the time, you know, I'd, I'd go to school, and some girl would look at me like I was dumber than a box of rocks and twice as ugly, you know. And, and so I would shape who I thought I was, right? And I come home, and I'm all discouraged, and, you know, weeping around, kicking the dirt. You know, my mom says, my mom says, well, to me, you're the most handsome guy at your school, right? Well, how valuable is that? <laughs> not, not very, right? I love you, Mom, but I don't really care if you think I'm handsome or not. I mean, think about what we're doing, right? When we're listening to the world's opinion of us, or even to our own heart, and listening to what does my heart say that I am? Who does my heart say that I am? Who does Joe Schmo say that I am? Who cares? This is what I want us to go away with. Of all the people who are trying to tell you who you are, Jesus Christ is the only one that knows everything about you. And he not only still loves you, but he died for you. So stop listening to the other identities that other people are trying to give you. Stop letting everybody else name you and start saying, I will embrace the identity that I have in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus. And if you're not, what are you waiting for? Or you can listen to the world and say, oh, but everybody says I'm a pretty nice guy. I mean, everybody says I'm a pretty good guy. I look into my heart and I say, I'm a pretty good, decent fella. But God looks at you and he says, you've sinned. And you've made yourself my enemy. And so that could be the identity that you die with and you embrace and you live with. That's your choice. Or you could stop being God's enemy and start being God's child. That's the identity he wants for you. And if it's time, if you've thought about it and prayed about it and studied about it and you're ready to hide yourself in Jesus, what are you waiting for? As for the rest of us that have already made that decision, let us live out the identity that we have in Christ Jesus. There's a room where the elders would love to pray with you. You could come forward. Let us prove to you that we see you the way God sees you. We love you and we want to be here and do anything we can to help you as we stand together and sing.